Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. Our scripture reading this morning is Luke 17 verses 5 and 6. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you will find Luke 17, 5 on page 876. Luke 17 verses 5 and 6. Listen to this. This is the very Word of God. The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. That is the reading of God's Word. Let us pray and ask for His blessing upon our study here this morning. Father God, this is Your Word. And as Larry has just prayed, You have promised that it will not return to You void. And so we ask that your word would have its effect through the ministry of your spirit here this morning. That as it is read and as it is preached, that you would be active, teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work which you have prepared for us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been given a job to do that was just beyond your ability to accomplish. I have to say I've had that experience more times than I care to count, especially when it comes to doing things around the house. Let's just say I'm not a very skilled handyman. In fact, you might say I'm the very opposite of a handyman. When there is a job to be done around the house, it is virtually certain that I am in over my head. So, for example, this last uh, Christmas, Sarah decided that she wanted new doorknobs in the house. She wanted to replace the, uh, the shiny brass doorknobs with some new color of doorknob, and so this was her Christmas present. And I know all the jokes about giving your wife a vacuum cleaner for Christmas and all that, but I promise you, this was her idea. This is what she wanted. She wanted new doorknobs. And she suggested that we could save some of the cost by installing them ourselves. I thought that was a bad idea, but I reluctantly agreed. And when they finally came in the mail and we started to install them, the first door went great. We took it off. We inserted a few screws. It worked perfectly. I thought, okay, maybe this isn't as bad as I think. But then we moved to the second door. And as I took the doorknob off the second door and tried to install the the, the new one, I, I realized that the hole in the door was too small. Somewhere along the lines, builders decided that just to annoy people down the road, they would change the size of the hole that the doorknob goes through. And so it was only one door. I thought, well, maybe. So I moved to the second door, and that hole was too small. And then I checked another door, and that hole was too small. And before long, I concluded that every hole and every door in the house must be the wrong size. And at that point, I knew I was in trouble. And so what did I do? What do you do when you find you have a job that you aren't equipped for, that you just simply can't handle? Well, you can probably guess what I did. I I asked for help. It happened that Sarah's uh, Sarah's sister and her husband were coming into town to, to stay with us for a few days, and he's a pretty handy guy, and he enjoys having a project. So I said, hey, when you come, why don't you plan on helping me, and why don't you bring the tools that we're going to need to do the job, because... I don't have those either. And so he did. He came. He brought his tools. And it was great. He knew how to do it. He, he helped me drill the holes. He helped me replace the hinges and, and make sure the doors were still level at the end and all of this. And, and it worked great because he knew what he was doing. 
But have you ever had an experience like that? Have you ever had a job to do, and, and as you began to undertake it, you, you pretty quickly realized, There's, this isn't going to happen. I, I can't do this. This is beyond my ability. I think that's the way many Christians think about the Christian life. When we hear what Jesus requires of us, when we hear what He calls us to do, we think it's just too hard. We think it's beyond our ability to accomplish. And let me say, I, I understand, I, I get it. When you think about some of the things that Jesus calls us to do, they are terribly hard. He, he calls us to love God with all our heart and to seek first His kingdom. There can be no divided allegiance. There can, there can be no divided heart. We are to love Him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, with all our mind. We are to, to seek His kingdom alone. And in seeking His kingdom, we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. Not just to avoid doing them harm. This isn't the, the Hippocratic oath of the Christian life. It's not just that we seek to do them harm, but we actually seek to, to do them good. We, we seek to seek their interest even before our own. We're told never to return evil for evil. We are told always to forgive. We are told never to be anxious, never to grumble, never to complain, but always to trust, always to rejoice, always to give thanks. These are hard commands. And in a sense, we are right to think that they are beyond our ability. We are right to think that it is more than we can handle because the truth is, none of us are able in our own strength to live the life we have been called to. None of us are able to live the Christian life on our own. But here's the thing. We aren't called to. We aren't called to live the Christian life in our own strength. On the contrary, we are called to live the Christian life in the strength that He provides. What Jesus teaches us in these verses, and what I want us to learn from Him this morning, is this. If you are a Christian, it is no longer true for you to say that you can't do it. If you are in Christ, it is no longer true for you to say it is too hard. You can no longer say that it is beyond your ability. Why? Because in Christ, by faith, you have everything you need to do everything He has called you to do. Hear that again. In Christ, by faith, we have everything we need to do everything He has called us to do. Now to see this, we must first understand the context of the disciples' request. So so look with me. In verse 5, the apostles say to Jesus, increase our faith. That's their request. That is their, their plea. But this request doesn't come out of the blue. Rather, this request is directly tied to what Jesus was teaching in the previous paragraph, the, the, the verses which we looked at last Sunday. But look with, them, look with me again at them just briefly this morning. Last Sunday we saw that in these verses, Jesus is calling his disciples to live with one another in accountable community. First, he, he warns them against being a stumbling block. He says temptations are going to come. We are going to encounter stumbling blocks in this life. Temptations to sin are sure to come. But you don't be that stumbling block. You don't be the source of that temptation, especially when you are dealing with little ones, especially when you are dealing with the weak or those who are easily influenced. Be on your guard against causing a brother to stumble. 
And then he shows them how to avoid being a stumbling block. We see this in verses 3 and 4. And basically, Jesus gives them a three-step process. He says, first, if your brother sins, rebuke him. Second, if he repents, forgive him. And third, repeat as often as necessary. If he sins against you seven times in one day, and he turns to you and says, I repent, you must forgive him. I don't want to spend too long on this, since that's the sermon I preached last Sunday, but but think about with me briefly just what this process entails. First, if your brother sins, rebuke him. Now, depending how you are wired, you may or may not hear that as something hard or, or difficult. For some, the idea of pointing out a brother's sin is just almost inconceivable. They can't even uh, think about the possibility of going to someone and say, hey, you know what, that's not okay. They, they are so non-confrontational that it's just impossible for them to, to think about confronting another person because of their sin. But for others of you, this doesn't really sound all that hard. You know, I know my kids, at least, are pretty good at telling their siblings when they've done something wrong. You know, pointing out uh, another person's problems doesn't just, just come sort of naturally. We, we just, we can, yeah, we can do this. However, when you consider the goal of the rebuke, we begin to see the difficulty. You see, the goal of the rebuke is not just to let them know that they have done something wrong. Rather, the goal of the rebuke is to, to draw them to repentance. The goal is to rebuke them in such a way that that they they are grieved by their sin and turn back to God for mercy. And so while we may be pretty good at denouncing sinners, it's it's a more difficult task to rebuke someone in such a way that, that elicits true repentance. And so this first step is already challenging enough, but it only gets harder. Next, Jesus says, if he repents, forgive him. What does that mean? To to forgive someone is to to cancel the debt. To to forgive someone is to to forfeit your right to payment. Now this is is considerably harder. As hard as it is to to truly and gently rebuke someone, it is is even harder to, to forgive them because the debt is real. Sins are real. They do real damage. We see, when our kids would, would sin against one another, we, we wouldn't allow the response to be, well, it's okay. You know, we, we wouldn't allow them to say that. We wouldn't allow them to say, well, it's just no big deal, because that's not true. It is actually a big deal. Sin causes damage. Sin causes hurt. And you don't say, well, it's okay. It doesn't really matter. You say, I forgive you. Because when you forgive someone, you are saying, I'm not going to hold that debt against you, but the debt still exists. And that means you're choosing to absorb it. You are choosing to absorb the cost of the harm that was done. This this is significantly harder. And yet this is what we are called to. But if you think it sounds hard to forgive them once, Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, and if he sins against you seven times in one day, you are to forgive him each and every time. At this point, it becomes almost unthinkable. How could could anyone do this? This This is clearly impossible. At least that's what the disciples think. When the disciples hear this, when we hear this, we, we say to ourselves, this is, this is too hard. This is, this is more than we can handle. And of course, this is just one of the impossible things that Jesus calls us to do. You know, the, he, the, this text could have followed any number of Jesus' very difficult, if not impossible, teachings. And it is this teaching which prompts the disciples 
request. Notice, after hearing Jesus' teaching, the disciples say to him, and and if you're sort of hearing this in your own head, you can probably hear this said with more than a hint of desperation. They they, they turn to Jesus and they basically say, help. (laughs) They say, increase our faith. Now this plea echoes one of my favorite pleas in all of Scripture. I'm, I'm thinking of the Father who says to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Do you remember that story? We read it in Mark chapter 9. Jesus and three of His disciples were on the mountain where Jesus was transfigured. But while they were gone, a father brought his son to the other disciples, to the remaining nine. And he said, my, my son is oppressed by, a, by an unclean spirit. Will you please help him? And of course, the disciples, they had done this before. They thought, sure, we can handle it. Jesus isn't here, but, but we, we've got this. But when they sought to drive the demon out of the spirit, they were not able to do it. Instead, the, the spirit almost taunted them. And so when Jesus shows up on the scene and he sees the, the commotion, he asks what's going on, and the father says, I, I brought my son to your disciples, and they were not able to heal him. If you can do anything, please help. And Jesus says, if? If I'm able to help? Do you not know that all things are possible for God, for the one who believes? When the Father hears this, He cries out, He says, I do believe, I do, but help my unbelief. It's a prayer that I have used again and again throughout my life. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. It is a good prayer. Think about all the things that are right about that prayer. Think about all the things that are right about the disciples' request. It is a a request that acknowledges that the Christian life is lived by faith. Faith is not simply the first step in the Christian life, but we live the Christian life by faith. It's it's why Paul talks about walking in the footsteps of faith. The Christian life is simply, as Francis Schaeffer used to say, living like we believe what we say we believe on a daily basis. Living like what we say on Sunday, what we confess with our mouth. Living like that is actually true in the course of our daily life. The Christian life is lived by faith. Not only does it acknowledge this, but it also acknowledges that that the Christian has an obligation to obey. When the disciples hear what Jesus is calling them to do, they they, they don't dismiss it and say, well, that's a little bit too hard. I think I'll I'll go a different direction. They they recognize that they are obligated to obey, that Jesus is indeed Lord, that He is their their Master, and that they are called to follow Him. They, They recognize their obligation to obey. And so they recognize their need for faith, they recognize their obligation to obey, and finally they they recognize that this Christian life that they are called to live is empowered by grace. You see, they are asking Jesus to do for them what they cannot do for themselves. They they recognize that faith has to be His gift, that that it's not something that they work up in themselves. They recognize that they are utterly and completely dependent upon God's Grace. And so there's a lot good in this request. And it's a, it's a request that we ought to learn to pray. We ought to learn to go before God and say, increase our faith. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. But as much as there is right about this request, there's also a danger associated with this request. And in this particular situation, it is the danger that Jesus chooses to address. Notice how Jesus responds in verse 6. He doesn't respond positively to their request. Rather, he sort of sidesteps it. He says, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, 
You could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now the imagery here is is sort of familiar and unfamiliar at the same time. You probably know that a mustard seed is the smallest seed used by man, or at least one of the smallest seeds that that we use to to grow cultivated plants. It's it's just the smallest little speck. But you're probably less familiar with the mulberry tree, at least I was, and so I had to look it up. And uh, Daryl Bach, who writes a a fairly extensive commentary on the Gospel of Luke, he, he says that the mulberry tree is a tree that has a vast root system that enables it to live for some 600 years. And when you think of a rooted tree, or when a first century Galilean would have thought of a a rooted tree, they would have thought of a mulberry tree. And so Jesus puts together these two images. He says, if you had faith like a speck of mustard seed, you could say to a mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, at this point, it should go without saying, but let me say it anyway, that Jesus isn't talking about commanding trees to literally be uprooted and thrown into the sea. That's not what Jesus has envisioned. Uprooting trees, as impressive as it might seem to other people, is is not really what the Christian life is about. But rather, this is the image that Jesus is using to picture our battle with our our sinful nature, to to battle our natural disposition against living in accountable community. The the rooted tree is the obstacle. It It is what stands in our way. Elsewhere, he uses the image of a mountain for the same thing. But the tree is, is that resistance, that, that rooted resistance against what God is calling us to do. And Jesus is saying that if you had even faith like a speck of mustard seed, you could say to this tree, be removed, and it would be removed. In other words, Jesus is saying to his disciples that if they had any faith at all, even the smallest seed of faith, then they could do what He is calling them to do. They could do what He commands. If you have a mustard seed of faith, you have everything you need to live the Christian life. But how can that be? How can a mustard seed of faith be enough? Let me say first, it's, it's not because faith is so powerful. It's not because faith is, is, is so potent that you only need a little bit. There are ingredients like that. There are, there are certain ingredients that Sarah uses when she is cooking that are, that are so powerful, you only need a small a bit of them to, to flavor an entire recipe. I'm not thinking of, of something like that. That's not what Jesus has in mind when he, when he speaks of the, the power of even a, a small grain of faith. Rather, a small grain of faith is enough, not because faith is so potent, but rather because faith connects you to an all-powerful God. See, it's not the power of faith. It's not the power of positive thinking. It's it's not the the strength of our faith that Jesus is, is getting at here. But he says, listen, if you have even the smallest speck of faith, then you are united to me, and in me, you are united 
to an all-powerful, almighty God, the Lord of hosts, the maker of heaven and earth, the God who does whatever he pleases, the God who calls the things that are not as though they are, the God that that calls the sun to rise and calls the, the stars out by name. This is the God to whom you are connected. Or as Paul says in Ephesians, the God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand. This is the God to whom you are connected. A mustard seed of faith is enough to live the Christian life. Not because faith itself is so powerful, but because faith connects you to the almighty God. We have to see this. We we have to to recognize that that faith connects us to Yahweh. Faith connects us to the Almighty. If you are a Christian, if you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and, and rested upon Him for your salvation, then you do not need anything extra. You do not need anything additional. You do not need anything more than what is already yours in Christ to live the Christian life. In Christ, by faith, you have everything you need to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you have received. As I said, this is what Paul says in in Ephesians. When he's praying for the Ephesians, he doesn't pray that God would give them something extra. He prays that God would open their eyes to what is already there, to the immeasurable power of God that is work in those who believe. Peter says the same thing in his second letter. In 2 Peter chapter 1, he, he writes that, that through faith in Christ, we have been granted all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things. All things that pertain to life. All things that pertain to godliness are already ours in Christ by faith. So if you are in Christ, if you have even that, that mustard seed of faith, then you have everything you need. But we find it hard to believe, don't we? We find it hard to believe because it doesn't exactly correspond with our experience. Jesus is saying we have everything we need to live the Christian life, and yet we find the Christian life incredibly hard. We find His commands incredibly difficult, if not impossible. We fall daily. Daily, we, we come short of the, the glory of, of God. So what's going on? Why is there this disconnect between what Jesus is saying is true and what we actually experience? I think there's an answer here, and it's this. We don't need anything more than what we have, but we do need to appropriate what is already ours in Christ. We don't need Him to give us anything additional, but we do need to learn to use what is at our disposal. So the question that we must ask ourselves is this, how do we appropriate this immeasurably great power that is is ours? How do we we use this strength? Paul talks about it in his letter to the Colossians. He says, I I strove, I worked hard, but it was not me. It It was His work in me. I strove with His strength. I strove with His might. How do we do that? How do we appropriate the immeasurably great power that is already at our disposal? Well, obviously, Jesus doesn't give an explicit answer in this text. But the text I was talking about earlier, the the story of the the father with the boy in Mark chapter 9, there he does answer a similar question. 
You see, the disciples wanted to know why they weren't able to cast out the demon. They, they were asking Jesus afterwards, you know, why didn't it work for us? Why couldn't we do it? Do you remember Jesus' answer? Do you remember what he said? He says, this kind can be driven out only by prayer. Now, some read that and they think, okay, well, Jesus is saying that this boy had a, had a particularly uh, strong demon, that the, that the demon in this boy was, was uh, of a particular type that required a particular technique that the disciples didn't know yet. It's kind of like, you know, you can, you can wash your clothes on the normal cycle most of the time, but if you get grape juice on a shirt, well, then, then you've got to you know, implement some sort of special technique if you want to tackle that kind of stain. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Rather, Jesus is reminding his disciples, that the power to drive out demons is not their power. It is not theirs in and of themselves, but rather it is God's power. And it is a power that is appropriated only by prayer. The moment the disciples start thinking, well, we got this. We can do this. The moment they stop relying on the power of God, no longer do they have the authority to to drive out the demons. This kind can be driven out only by prayer. When I hear that, I, I hear it as the answer to our question. How do we appropriate the power of God to live the Christian life? We appropriate that power through prayer. We do not have in ourselves strength to live the Christian life. But in Christ, all that we need is at our disposal. Therefore, we must learn to pray. We must learn to go before God in prayer, asking Him to strengthen us today to do what He has given us to do today. Too often we think of of prayer as as this discipline that we do for God in order to, to show Him that we are righteous or that we are earnest or that we are sincere in our faith. That is not what God intended prayer to be. Jesus says to His disciples, Your Father already knows what you need, therefore ask like this. Prayer is a means of grace. It is a means of, of appropriating the power that is already at our disposal. So the question that we must ask ourselves is, are we willing to do this? Are we willing to pray? I know it is something that I fail at far too often. Far too often I try to live the Christian life in my own strength. And I can tell you inevitably, when I do, like the disciples, I fall flat on my face. When I seek to do the things that I've been given to do in my own strength, I fail. And I fail miserably. When I seek to walk in my own strength, I am not able to renounce the passions of my flesh. When I seek to walk in my own strength, I am not able to to love my neighbor as myself. And neither are you. We cannot do this in our own strength. This kind can be driven out only by prayer. And therefore, we must commit to pray. We must commit to praying daily and even more than daily. In the ancient church, there were hours of prayer. There were, there were hours set aside where the people of God would, would go before God in prayer. Today, we associate that sort of thing with, with Muslims. They're, they're the ones who have their hours of prayer. They're the ones who, at, no matter what they're doing at a certain time of day, they have to bow towards Mecca and pray. And we say, oh, how superstitious, how foolish are they? Let us not throw out the the baby with the bathwater. Yes, a tradition like this can be abused. Yes, a tradition like this can can become a a a man-made form of, of righteousness. 
But the early church was wise to have set times of prayer, times where we were reminded to stop and to go before God and pray. At the very least, we, we go before Him morning and evening. At the very least, we go before Him at the beginning of our day. We say, today, Lord, may Your name be glorified. Today, Lord, would You strengthen me to renounce the passions of my flesh and to, to walk in a manner that brings glory to Your name. Today, would You grant me the strength to accept Your will and to do what is right in Your sight. Today, whatever it is on Your plate, would You, would you grant me the strength to do this project? Would You grant me the strength to love this person? Would You grant me the strength to have this conversation? Would you lead me in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake? And in the evening we come before and we thank Him for the grace that He has shown us throughout the day. And we ask Him that He would continue to watch over us from the, uh, in the night. That He would forgive us for the ways that we had fallen short. And that He would lead us into tomorrow. That again tomorrow we might do what He gives us to do. Morning and evening at the very least. Uh, the, the church also sometimes adds in midday where you pause in the middle of the day. You know, you've, you've kind of gone through your morning and, and you realize that even, in, even though you started your day with prayer, by lunchtime your, your brain has been overcome by, by other things and you've been distracted and you need to reset again. And of course, there were even those who set aside a time every three hours. Six o'clock, nine o'clock, twelve o'clock, three o'clock, six o'clock, nine o'clock. And they, uh, today you can just sort of set your watch and say, I'm, at these times I'm going to pause, I'm going to pray. This is what it means to, to keep the hours. You don't have to pray for an hour, but to, just to pause and to pray and to remember, God, this next portion of my day, I cannot do it without You. I cannot live this life I've been called to live. To Your glory, if You are not with me, if You are not strengthening me, all the strength is at our disposal. We must simply learn to appropriate it by prayer. So this is what we must do. We must learn to to plug in. We must learn to appropriate the grace that has been offered to us, the grace that has been secured for us in Christ. A few years ago, on one of the first cool mornings of the fall, after a long, hot summer, everyone was was in the sanctuary and everyone was, was shivering. Everyone was talking about how cold it was, not outside, but actually in the building, in here, in the, the sanctuary. Everyone was, was shivering and wondering why it was so cold. And so after the service, Doug, our, our resident handyman, he went and he, he, he went to go see what was wrong. And, and I think he was probably expecting the worst. But what he discovered was that there was really nothing wrong with the system. Rather, we had simply forgot to turn it on. We hadn't switched it from cool to heat. And so everyone was cold. Let's not make that same mistake. In Christ, we have everything we need to live the Christian life. We don't need anything that is not already ours in Him. We don't need a special gift. We don't need a second blessing. We simply need to appropriate what has already been given to us by faith. So next time you're struggling to to live the Christian life, whether that's to rebuke a sinner, to, to forgive someone who sinned against you, or any of the other things that Christ has called us to do, the next time you are struggling to walk in a manner worthy of your Lord, do not believe the lie that what you are called to do is too hard. Do not believe the lie that you simply cannot do it. Instead, remember the words of Jesus. If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, 
You can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Because all the immeasurable power of God is yours by faith and is at your disposal. And because this is true, because such power is ours in Christ, that is one reason we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Believe it with me. Father God, we do rejoice in your gospel. We recognize that what you have called us to is beyond us. Father, that we are weak, that we are broken, that we are, are, are unable to, to live the lives that you have called us to live. And yet, Father, we recognize that in Christ, your power is there to be used. And so grant us the grace to ask for it. Grant us the grace to use it. That we might say with Paul, That we have worked out our salvation with fear and trembling because it is you who is at work in us to will and to do that which is pleasing to you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.